Uh, Our text today is from Matthew chapter 18. You might want to turn there with me. The disciples in verse 1 of this chapter had come to Jesus with a question. They are saying to him, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, it's interesting as you look at Matthew's account of this story and Mark and Luke's account, and you bring all those accounts together, you find that this question was asked on the heels of an argument that the disciples have previously had with one another. They have been traveling with Jesus towards the city of Capernaum, and amongst themselves they are having this debate with each other as to who's the greatest. And I was imagining that argument in my mind this last week. Can't you just hear them going back and forth with each other? And I am sure that Peter was right in the middle of it. He probably said something like this. Well, I'm the greatest because I'm the one who stepped forward to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And his chest is puffed out and his head is held high. And he's just so proud of himself. And about that time, one of the other disciples comes back at him and says, Yes, I do remember that, but if I remember the whole story, I'm thinking that it wasn't but just a short while after that, Jesus was calling you Satan, telling you to get out of the way, that you are a stumbling block to him. And, and about that time, there was a hearty har-har across the group, and they're giving one another high fives as Peter is put in his place. But, you know, Peter's hard to shut up. And he has a comeback. He says, and don't you forget that I was the one who stepped out of the boat, and it was me who walked on the water, while the rest of you fellas sat there in that boat like bumps on a log. And then somebody again steps forward and and has a comeback to Peter and says to him, and if I remember right, you were walking on the water for just a short while because you sunk like a rock. And you would have ended up at the bottom of the lake had not Jesus reached out his hand to pull you up. Don't forget that, Peter. And probably about this time, Andrew steps up and says to Peter, Hey, you wouldn't even know who Jesus was unless I was the one who brought you to Jesus and introduced you to him. Of course, James and John, they have their reasons for thinking that they are the greatest in the kingdom. They were a part of the inner three that Jesus would often take with him and leave the other nine behind. And Judas Iscariot, I'm sure, had his say too. He had to be the greatest because Jesus had entrusted him with the money bag. He was the treasurer of the group. And I am sure that each of these fellows took their turn in giving a reason as to why they thought they were the greatest in the kingdom. And they reached their destination of Capernaum. And as they settle in, Jesus according to Mark's gospel, says to them, what were you discussing on the way? Of course, he knew what they were discussing. He was was not ignorant of that. But he throws the question out to them. What were you discussing on the way? And, of course, everybody just quiets down 
at that point. Nobody wants to fess up to Jesus what they've been arguing about. So they all just stand there. Nobody's answering him. Their heads are down. They're like kids whose hands have been caught in the cookie jar. The silence is awkward. And finally, one of them steps up and has the courage to ask him this question, which of us is the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus? And I'm sure they've all braced themselves for his answer. One of them is about to be feeling really good. And the rest of them are about to be feeling really bad. But Jesus' answer to their question was far different than what they had anticipated. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. Mark Moore in his commentary refers to this as the theology of humility. Now, you may or may not know this. This is the first of three arguments that the disciples have about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The second time occurs after James and John's mother pulls Jesus aside and asks him if her two sons can have the two most prominent seats in the kingdom, if one of them could sit on his left hand and one of them could sit on his right hand. And, and that did not set well with the other disciples. They, verse, verse 41 of Mark chapter 10 says that they became indignant with James and John. That simply means they were mad, they were irate. That such a question would even be asked. Probably, if the truth were known, they're upset that their own mother hadn't asked the question first of Jesus. And certainly they are feeling like these two fellows, through through their mother, are trying to maneuver their way into the prominent seats of the kingdom. And it, it, it just springs forth this argument amongst themselves as to who is the greatest. That was the second time this argument happened. There was a third time. Do you remember the setting there? It's the Passover. They're in the upper room. And even as they're sitting around the table getting ready to partake of the Passover with Jesus, this is going to be their last Passover with him. And they're arguing over who among them is the greatest in the kingdom. And I am quite sure that Jesus was so tired of their bickering. He was wearied over the fact that they just hadn't got the message that he had been trying to give to them. Listen to this theology of humility. I mean, this is the message that Jesus preached Over and over again throughout his entire ministry, he says to them, as they have argued this first time about who is the greatest, he brings a little child in to their midst and he says, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Mark 9.35, he says this, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. I want, I want you to hear the message that Jesus is proclamating to his disciples over and over again. Luke's account of it says this way, chapter 9, verse 48, For he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. You talk about a paradox. I'm sure this put the disciples on their head and, and, and started them spinning around. And they're thinking in their mind, you've got to be kidding, Jesus. True greatness is found in servanthood. If you want to be first, you must become last. Are you confused, Jesus? What is this you are saying? Well, surely he was not confused. And he knew exactly what he was saying. He was just sounding a whole lot different from the world. This is the message that Jesus preached both publicly and privately to his disciples. Matthew 20, 26 and 27, he said this, Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Luke twenty two twenty six says, Let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. And then again in Matthew 23, 12, And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Is the message sinking in? I mean, even as I have read to you the words of Jesus over and over again of what true greatness is in the kingdom, are we letting the message sink in to our minds any more than what the disciples let the message sink into their minds? It's certainly a message that contradicts the world's message. What's the world say in this Question that is presented, who is the greatest in the kingdom? I'll tell you what the world would say to that question. True greatness is the one who is out front, the one who is leading, the one who has people underneath him and serving him and catering to him. True greatness is the one who is first, the one who wins the race, the one who climbs to the top of the ladder. It's the one who is popular. It's the one who is rich. It's, it's the one who is pretty. The one who is macho. True greatness is the one who is talented. The one who is successful. The one who has power and authority. That's how you define true greatness, says the world. But that's not what Jesus says. And might I remind you that Jesus is always right. He is the source of truth and wisdom. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the Son of God and the King of kings. He is the one who will have the final say. He's the one who has risen up from the dead. And so we better listen to him and what he has to say. He says it this way. True greatness is in the one who serves. That's the theology of humility and it coincides with what the rest of scripture teaches this is not just what jesus says as he as he comes out onto a limb no this is in connection 
in perfect correlation with what the rest of Scripture says about true greatness. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. 1 Peter 5.6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. Colossians 3.12 tells us to clothe ourselves with humility. And then the wise man Solomon said it this way, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. The theology of humility is consistent throughout this book. True greatness is found through being a servant. Would you say that with me, please? So let's say it together. True greatness is found through being a servant. Let those words sink into your mind. Don't be fooled by the, by the message of the world. Don't be fooled by those around you who are living by the world's standard. Rather, be consumed with the truth of God, the theology of humility, that true greatness is found through being a servant. Now, let's, for a moment, consider the example of the teacher, the great teacher. Jesus was the greatest model of servanthood that we know of. He left the splendor of heaven to come here and serve. Philippians 2 says it this way, that he emptied himself and became in the form of a bondservant. He left the glory of heaven to come here, to become one of us. And why did he come? He came to serve, says Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was all about serving others. He had a servant spirit as he, as he performed those miracles of mercy. He had a servant spirit as he reached out and touched the leper. He had a servant spirit as he gave hope to the hopeless and as he forgave the sinners. Of course, one of the greatest acts of service was when he washed the disciples' feet in the upper room. Do you, you, you remember that? That was a job for a slave to do. But there was no slave around to do that. The disciples and Jesus, they had gathered there in that upper room for the Passover meal. Their feet were dirty. It would have been customary in that day as they entered into the house for someone, a slave, to be there to wash their feet. But that was a point that the disciples had overlooked when they secured the room. They had forgot all about getting a servant. They forgot about hiring a slave to be there for that purpose. They got the room just as Jesus had told them to do. They had the room set up. The meal was ready. The, the pillows were there for them to lean on. Everything was in place except the slave to wash the feet of those who entered the room. And so they're sitting there around the table arguing with each other as to which of them was the greatest. And probably this argument has been spurred on by who it is that is sitting next to Jesus 
John is on one side and Judas Iscariot is on the other. And so they're fussing with each other over who's the greatest in the kingdom. And probably they're they're trying to convince one another it can't be John because he's got such a temper and, and Judas... And Jesus just quietly gets up from his place. And he girds himself with a towel, the scripture says. And he gets a basin of water. And he bends down. And he begins to wash the disciples' feet one by one by one. Can you imagine the quiet, (laughs) the quietness that came over the room? As they're seeing what their master is doing. I mean, he's, he's, he's bending down and washing our feet. He's doing that which a slave ought to be doing. And might I remind you that he even washes the feet of Judas, who is about to betray him. And when he's finished with the foot washing, he has this to say to them. He says, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that as I have done to you, so you should do to others. Jesus didn't just talk about being a servant. He lived it out. And in just a few hours, in less than 12 hours, Hours from this point, he would be put on a cross, humbling himself even to the point of death, Philippians 2 says. He, he really was living the life of a servant. That's the teacher's example. He didn't just talk about us being a servant. He showed us how to be a servant through his own life. Thirdly, let me simply make some application for you today from this text and from all of these scriptures that we've looked at. If this is what Jesus taught, if this is what Jesus lived, shouldn't we be servants too? And and is this message sinking into our mind and into our heart any better than what it did to the disciples? Or are we too trying to be the greatest? Are we living by Jesus' definition of greatness or are we chasing after the world's definition of greatness? Mark Moore talks about this egotistical spirit that so many people live by. He says it this way, and I quote, he says, It drives us to the front of the line, to the best seat in the house, and to the biggest piece of cake. How should this theology of humility show up in our life? Well, how about about in the home? What would it look like if it showed up in the home? If we were humble as Jesus calls us to be, we'd be less about ourselves, and we would be more about our spouse and the other members of the family. You know, this was a perfect skit. This morning, not just about the marriage seminar, but just life. If we're humble, if we're dying to ourselves, we're going to be interested in what our spouse is saying to us. What 
her wishes are or what his wishes are. There'd be less thought of everybody needing to serve me. There would be more thought of me being willing to serve others in the family. Can you imagine a home where everybody's wanting to serve each other? People are being considerate of each other. Remember the story of the mother who was preparing pancakes for her two sons, Billy, who was five, and Ryan, who was three. The boys were arguing with each other over who was going to get the first pancake. Their mother heard the argument. She saw an opportunity for a lesson to be given to them. She said, if Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. And Billy turns to his younger brother and he says, hey, Ryan, you be Jesus. It's hard, isn't it, to always be Jesus in the home? But we need to be trying for that. And if Jesus were in the home, I think things would be a whole lot different than what they are now. There would be less yelling and screaming and arguing and fighting with each other. There would be more consideration of each other. We'd be serving one another more if Jesus were in the home and in our heart. We, we give more, not demanding our own way. We pick up after ourselves more. We look for opportunities to make the other person happy, not worrying about so much our own happiness. But you know what we would find out is this, that if we would be making an effort to, to bring happiness to our spouse, the happiness would return to us. We'd be happier. Oh, if we had this humble spirit about us, we'd jump in and help rather than sit in our chair, wait for somebody to come and serve us. We wouldn't always be the one that's right and insist that it be our way or the highway. You know what? If we had Jesus in our heart more than what we do, we'd listen more. We'd love more. We'd forgive more. We'd be more forbearing. And, and we'd be a whole lot easier to live with if we would buy into Jesus' theology of humility. I think the workplace would be different too, not just the home. If we were less about self and more about being a servant, the atmosphere at work could be totally different. Now, I realize not everybody's going to, to live this way, but it's got to start somewhere. Why not let it start with you? If you decide that you're going to be a servant-minded person at work, you know what? You're going to look like a star in a night black sky. You're going to shine bright like that star. And people will start to take notice as you pick up after people at work, as you reach out to help people, as you are patient with people and not cranky with them, and you're doing it for His glory and His honor and to the building up of His name, not the uplifting of your own name. And what about here at church? You think things would be different here at church? If all of us really strived for this selflessness, this attitude of being a servant. 
if we were all looking for what we might could do to help the church grow, rather than having the mentality of just coming and on a Sunday morning and sitting and having others do for us, our attitude should not be, what can I get today? Rather, it should be, what can I give today? How can I help somebody? How can I encourage somebody today as I'm here on a Sunday morning? You know, that's the selflessness that I think Jesus is wanting us to have. That, that we're going to we're going to buy into this theology of humility. We're going to humble ourselves. Not worrying about exalting ourselves, but we're going to humble ourselves. And then we understand Jesus will exalt us at the proper time. The bottom line is... God needs more servants. He needs more servants in the home. He needs more servants at, at the workplace, at, at church. He needs more servants in, in the school. He needs more servants in the community and in the neighborhood. Everywhere we go, we should have this servant spirit about us. This theology of humility. I'm going to buy into this. I'm going to live this. Because that's how Jesus lived. And do you remember Jesus' words to the one whom he's inviting into heaven? I mean, this is important stuff that we're talking about today. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the Lord. That's, that's the words I want to hear. I know that's the words you want to hear too. But I think the implication is, To have heard those words, to hear those words, we need to have been living that life of a servant. Humbling ourselves before the Almighty God. Let's pray together. God, thank you for these lessons in humility. Lessons that Jesus taught verbally but even more importantly, lessons that he taught by his own example. And so, Lord, help us to be the servant that you've called us to be everywhere we go. And we pray this in Jesus' name.